And there in Matthew 24, he is speaking of a falling away that is permanent, it is final. Those who abandon the faith will not return to it. Now he is not using that in the same way that he is speaking to the disciples here when he says they will be scattered. For they will be gathered again, as we see at the end of verse 31. But the falling away of the disciples will happen and it will be as serious as possible without being total apostasy. They'll abandon Jesus in the darkest hour of his life. (coughs) Peter, of course, being Peter, he responds with an eager confidence. As we read in verse 33, Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter will stay close to Jesus as the night unfolds. And we will see him try to defend Christ, even drawing his sword as Judas comes to betray Christ and he is arrested and led to the place of trial. But that boasting, that confidence simply sets him up for more dramatic of a fall. And so Jesus responds to Peter. He says, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter will not simply abandon Jesus. He won't just run and hide like the rest of the disciples. He will deny Christ outright and actively. He will deny him. And not only will he deny Jesus, but he will do so three times on that very same night. And Peter, of course, is still incredulous. He ups his resolve and he responds with even greater force. He says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And he has by this point, obviously have come to terms with the idea of a suffering Messiah. He knows that Jesus will die. Jesus has been predicting that and teaching that. He understands that. But he believes that within his own heart, I'll follow my Savior to his death. I will die with him. And the other disciples, the eleven who remain, they follow Peter's lead And they make that same bold promise. We will never deny you, but follow you to death. And what happens next, though, as they enter into that garden scene, begins to show that their strong words and their conviction will be unable to keep them from nearly falling into utter apostasy. And so they come to this place called Gethsemane, which means oil press. It was probably a grove of olive trees, which makes sense considering they are on the Mount of Olives. And so there, under the beauty of million stars looking down upon them amidst the peacefulness of those olive trees, deep darkness descends upon the heart of Christ. And so he takes with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. James and John to a remote corner of this garden. Now, why does he take those three? Well, it's important because of who they are. First, they are 
among the first disciples that Jesus has called. They have been with him the longest, committed to him longer than the others. Also, Peter, James, and John were the three disciples who have publicly declared they are willing to die for Jesus. Back in Matthew 20, James and John said that they could drink the cup that Jesus would drink. And as we've just observed, Peter said he would never deny Christ, even following him to death. Not only, though, did they claim to have a deeper commitment to Christ than the others, but these three men had borne witness to Jesus' transfiguration. Back in Matthew 17, Jesus had taken them up to a mountain where he reveals to them a small glimpse of his glory and power. The veil of his flesh was lifted and they saw the glory of Jesus as the second person of the Godhead. And they heard a voice from heaven call out to them, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so among the other disciples, these men were important. They were special. They were leaders of the others. They were set at a higher place. But because of that, when they fell, their fall would be all the greater. They would fail him by abandoning him. They would fail him by denying him. Even those who were the most committed to Christ, the leaders and the best of the disciples, they will fail. Jesus, in deep sorrow, wants them to pray with him. And so he says, watch with me. That is, pay attention, stay alert, stay awake with me. Put aside your distractions and pray with me. Be with me, I need you, my friends, at this hour. But they are still unmoved by the drama of God that is happening at that very moment. And overcome by fatigue, they fall asleep. Jesus finds them sleeping and he says to Peter, So, you, you who said that you would follow me even to the death, you could not watch with me but one hour? When nobody notices the suffering of another person, there is a great sense of loneliness and abandonment that comes over them, and it will create more suffering. And the disciples falling asleep here, unable to be with Jesus, added to his sorrow the inattention to the serious of the matter, the the lack of concern of Jesus' closest friends further filled up that cup of grief that he was experiencing. I mean, they had just boasted that they would be able to drink of his cup, but they couldn't even swallow one sip. They claimed they would die for Jesus, not deny him, but they couldn't even pray for one hour. And so Jesus asked them again to watch and to pray. He says in verse 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And this is now a call not just to pray for Jesus, but to pray for themselves as well. For they would need strength 
That we need grace to not enter into temptation, to not abandon Christ. Nevertheless, as Jesus says, their spirit was willing. That is to say, they truly wanted to stay faithful to Christ, but their flesh was weak. They would still fail him. And they do it again right away. They fall asleep yet again. And so Jesus comes, he stirs them, he wakes them, he asks them to be with him, to pray, and he goes off again. And then he returns, and there they are sleeping yet again. Three failures, three missed opportunities to display the faithfulness they had adamantly declared they possessed. And such is the echo of Peter's threefold denial and the scattering of the sheep. Indeed, this whole incident in Gethsemane is a mournful foreshadow of the colossal failure that will momentarily happen. And so we have to ask this question, though, why did Jesus even tell them they were going to do this? He could have just let it happen, but he tells them. He predicts their failure. Well, the reason Jesus does that is because he wants them to be reminded of their weakness. You see, only once you understand your own weakness, your own inability, will you then see how much you truly need Jesus. We like to think that we are actually better than we truly are. As Christians, we think that we are actually more committed to Christ than we actually are. Clearly, these disciples in the garden thought that. They believed they had the courage to stick with Jesus no matter what, but they couldn't even pray one hour. They couldn't remain in his presence for one hour. They couldn't remain with him in the garden to watch and to pray and to comfort him. And if they couldn't remain with him in the garden, how would they expect to remain with him at the cross? To be with him, that is to abide in his presence, is what he is asking for of them in verse 38. To show their faithfulness, their commitments. But it doesn't match what they claimed. They thought they were better. They thought they were more committed than they actually were. But the disciples' problem in the garden is our problem too. I mean, I would like to think that if faced with the prospect of suffering for Christ, that I would remain faithful to him. I pray that be the case. I mean, all believers, I think, believe that. Peter, James, and John, and the other 11, they certainly thought that. But our hearts, our hearts so often betray us. What is important to Christ many times is not that important to us. And so it's easy to fall asleep before we fall away. Sometimes our identity to Jesus becomes inconvenient to us, especially when the winds of of culture and society blow against it, and so we scatter, we abandon him. Many Christians abandon Christ for a more convenient Jesus, a more comfortable Savior, a Jesus who does not say, lose your life in me. Rather than laying aside 
every weight of sin that easily clings to us and looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith and running the race faithfully that he has set before us, we find it simply easier to walk comfortably down that road or worse, sit by the side of the road. And why is it that so many people who name the name of Christ in our country find that even worshiping and gathering with Christ's people, with his body on his day, is just an arbitrary thing? I mean, it ought to grieve us deeply that today we have brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who have gathered to worship in secret, in silence, but doing so knowing that this will be the last day they gather to worship Christ on earth because tomorrow they will be arrested and they will be killed. And yet so many believers in this country will not gather with Christ's body for any number of reasons. Some will choose comfort over Christ, others safety over their Savior. For some, their personal rights are more important than their powerful king. And so they cannot be inconvenienced to gather in his presence. Indeed, We can be just like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus asks us to remain and watch and pray in his presence one day out of seven. And we find it difficult to remain alert even to do that. We'd rather choose our comfort, our personal freedom, our safety, or simply our convenience. And yes, ours, including my own, our commitment, my commitment to Christ, is so fickle. The unfaithfulness of my heart causes me to sorrow. I mean, I've been a Christian for almost four decades now, and I'm, I'm still grieved by how easy it is to choose my comfort, my convenience, my sin over my Savior. But here's the good news. It's because of our failure, your failure and mine, it's because we fall asleep in our faith when we should remain awake with Christ, it is because of that that Jesus' deep sorrow in the garden is good news. You see, Jesus sorrowed in Gethsemane so that your sorrow, your guilt, your grief might come to an end. Jesus' sorrow was real. He experienced an anguish of mind that is difficult to describe with words. In verse 37, we're told that Jesus was both sorrowful and troubled as he, he says this to his disciples. Sorrow is this deep, overwhelming sadness that, that causes your chest to literally ache. And the trouble is distress, anguish, anxiety that just overcomes you. We get a sense of how great that sorrow was which Jesus experienced in that moment in the garden when he says he was sorrowful even to death. It's a statement of emphasis. It's like when you say, I was scared to death. 
and anguish of the soul so deep that it could be felt as if he would die right there in the garden before he even gets to the cross. I mean, this isn't the Jesus we saw earlier in Matthew's gospel. This isn't the strong Jesus challenging the Pharisees and the religious leaders for their hypocrisy and their graceless gospel. This isn't the Jesus who threw out the money changers from the temple. This isn't the Son of Man coming in great glory with his holy angels wielding his scepter of judgment. This is a man that is crushed with crippling anguish in his soul. And when we understand the cup that he is about to drink, of which he prays, we can understand why he has that sorrow. For that cup, that cup is nothing less than God's holy judgment against the sin of this world. Jesus was not sorrowing over the pain, the suffering of the cross, death itself, as painful and horrible as that was. He was sorrowing because the eternal judgment of God for every single last sin of those of whom he says is about to be poured out upon him. The full measure Nothing held back. Every last drop, nothing would remain in the cup. And Jesus saw all that he must suffer in that moment. He would suffer for Peter's denial. He would take upon him the failure of James and John and the others as they run and hide and leave and abandon him. He would bear upon his shoulders the combined weight of guilt of every one of us for every one of our sins for every time we have denied him and abandoned him and chosen our own way. Eternity's punishment of the billions of the redeemed placed upon him in one moment. That is the cup that he would drink. That is his cup of sorrow. And so no wonder he prays then, in verse 39, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Notice Jesus prays, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He says that because it is not possible. There was only one possible way to redeem his people. And that was for Jesus to drink this cup of suffering and sorrow. There was no other way to accomplish redemption, save his people from their sin, and erase their guilt before God Almighty, but to drink the cup. The penalty had to be paid. Nobody else could do it, for nobody else was worthy but Jesus. All others are stained by the guilt of their own sin. All others are unfaithful failures. They can't even be expected to remain awake for an hour and pray. Only a holy and perfect substitute would be sufficient to satisfy God's holy justice. Only one who within his very being had divine power to do the impossible could actually accomplish it. One who is both strong and kind. One 
who could give his life as a ransom for others. And so Jesus, with great resolve, continues to pray, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. Your will be done. Those words are the most important words Jesus spoke while he was on earth. Your will be done. It is Jesus' human nature submitting to the divine. It is the Son doing what the Father has tasked him to do. Your will be done. It's the will to save you and to save me from our unfaithfulness and failure. You see, the shepherd, though he is struck, he will not abandon his sheep. Back in verse 31, as Jesus predicts the disciples' failure with that quote from Zechariah 13, explaining how the shepherd will be struck, he follows that by explaining that he will come again to gather those scattered sheep. In verse 32, he gives words of comfort, words of hope. He says, after I am raised up, he's talking about immediately after his resurrection, I will go before you to Galilee. The disciples would fail, they would fall away, they would stumble, but it would not be final. Because Jesus would be raised from that grave. He would go before them and gather his scattered sheep. Remember the details in scripture are often important. And mentioning that he will go into Galilee before them is very significant. Because it preaches to you and I the grace of the gospel. You see, Galilee is where it all began. Galilee is the place where Jesus first gathered his disciples, those who first followed him. It was known as the place where light shone into the darkness of the world. Way back in Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus leaves his little village of Nazareth and he begins his public ministry, he enters into Galilee. And Matthew tells us that that was done to fulfill the words of God through the prophet Isaiah. He says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Galilee of the Gentiles. A place full of people who had no natural claim to God's covenant promises of mercy. And yet it is those people, those who dwelt in darkness, who would see a great light. And the shadow of death will give away to the one who has conquered it. As the risen conqueror Christ shines forth the splendor of his redeeming light. And that light falls upon the darkness of sorrowing hearts of your heart and of mine. It is the light that warms our sorrow, our grief, and melts away our guilt. Yes, we do, and we will abandon him just like those first disciples. But he will never abandon us. 
He has gone on before the risen Lord so that we might follow after in his light. And so when you are overwhelmed by the sorrow of this world and the sorrow of your own sin, you can look to the light of the one who sorrowed in the garden for you. All our sorrows are swallowed up in the sorrow of our suffering Savior who submitted to the will of God so that we might find comfort in Him. And one day, the final tear will fall and the last heart will break and the final cry of weeping will sound forth and then, and then all our sorrows will be no more. Because Jesus wept in a garden of sorrow for you. And so the day is coming when we read in the prophet Isaiah that he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach that is the failure of his people will be taken away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. For in it, we see the very heart of our sorrow when we are struck by the human nature of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose heart was broken in that garden for his disciples, but not just for those eleven, not just for Peter and James and John, but for each and every one of us who in faith has looked to him. Father, indeed, we have many sorrows. We see our own brokenness, our own failures. But Father, we praise you because those failures, our sinfulness, our sorrow, has been answered already in the tears of our Savior that were shed for us. And so, Father... Impress these truths upon our hearts. Help us to continue to look to you and keep us faithful even to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.